Now let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 7. The Word of God says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the, prom- that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better." And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may say, so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, throughout this entire study, uh, for probably the last, I don't know, three weeks at least, we've occupied our attention with Christ as being a better priest than the priests of the Old Testament, Levitical, and Aaronic priesthood. And this is sort of what we're going to study tonight is sort of the crowning jewel in Paul's argument concerning this. Now, remember, to you and I today, this is written written to Jewish individuals that are right at the door. They've either accepted Christ and uh, they're wavering in their faith in Him, or they have not accepted Christ, but they're trying to decide if they're going to, or they have accepted Christ long ago, but they've never grown in the Lord, and so they still look backwards to the Old Testament system uh, to try to find satisfaction and confidence. And so Paul is writing, and he's essentially telling them, go on and trust the Lord. And part of his uh, argument for this is that Christ is a far greater high priest than the Old Testament could offer. Now, you might say, preacher, that's good, but I'm not in that situation. I'm not a Jewish individual right at the door believing in Christ. What does this mean for me today? Well, what it means for us today is that we can put our entire confidence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, to sanctify us, to keep us, to secure us in the presence and fold of God. We don't have to look to human priests to do so. And you might say, well, preacher, who does that? Well, there's about a billion Roman Catholics walking the earth today. And uh, Roman Catholicism is based on the idea that you have to go to a human priest to get to God. And then there's a lot of people that have this kind of attitude, maybe not concerning a priesthood, but a certain preacher or a certain church or a certain movement that they think, if I'm not a part of that, then I can't know God. The reality is that our knowledge of God comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have preachers, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a church, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't use local churches, but it does mean that our standing in Christ is just that. It's our standing in Christ. And He is fully sufficient and capable and able of doing and providing for us all of the things that we need to have a relationship with God. So it is in this vein of logic that we are once again reminded of, or we might even say introduced to, even though he's already been mentioned, it's like we're formally introduced to this person, Melchizedek. And the thought that we want to follow for a moment here tonight is that Christ is a royal priest. And what we mean by that is that in the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are dual roles personified right now in who he is. Now, the first thing that I believe Paul points to is the undoubted lordship of Christ as high priest. And he brings us back to this person of Melchizedek to illustrate this. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned two other times in your Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter number 14, and there's a little narrative about when Abraham meets him after he defeated the confederacy of kings in the Vale of Siddim. And then he's mentioned in Psalms 110. In one verse, in Psalms 110, uh, David, prophetically speaking, says, uh, Thou art called a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. 
In other words, uh, God was prophetically speaking that the order of Melchizedek, that his priesthood did not die with him, but it abides and lives on in a prophetic sense in a future high priest. Of course, we know that high priest is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to notice very quickly six things about Melchizedek. And I, and I promise you, we're going to get to who I believe he is here in just a moment, but I want to do it in hand as opposed to just jumping to it. Look at verse number one and consider the prerogative of Melchizedek. The Bible says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, remember, we're trying, to, we're trying to understand here why the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Aaron and of the Levites. Well, one of the reasons is because we see two offices rolled up into one in the person of Melchizedek. It was forbidden under Old Testament Levitical law for a person to be both a high priest and a king. In fact, there was an instance, and we're told about it in the book of Isaiah, when Uzziah the king, and Uzziah was a good king, by the way. Uh, you know, there were a lot of rotten kings in the history of the, the two uh, nations there when they were divided, but Uzziah was a good king. Uh, he did wrong things from time to time, but by and large, he followed the Lord. And Uzziah tried to go into the temple and offer a sacrifice, and God immediately struck him with leprosy uh, for his infraction, for his uh, intrusion upon on the priesthood. So it was forbidden for a person to be both a priest and a king. And yet the Bible says clearly that Melchizedek was both the king of Salem. And, and you know, we, that's familiar to us, right? That, that word Salem. We usually don't hear it just with the word Salem. We hear it uh, in the word Jerusalem. And uh, a lot of people might dispute this, but I believe when it says he was the king of Salem, I believe at that time there was a, a, a city in Jerusalem uh, and that Melchizedek, he was the ruler of it. He was the king of it. I believe when it says he was a king, it means just that, that he was a king. But also we understand that the term uh, Salem means peace. Uh, Jews use this term when they meet each other today, only to, it doesn't sound like Salem. They'll say Shalom. Well, that literally means peace. And so he was the king of peace, but he was also a literal king of a literal place. And yet the Bible also says that he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, where do we find this authenticated? I think we find it authenticated in the fact that Abraham recognized him and recognized his priesthood. Abraham, of course, was a righteous man. Abraham would not have, a, have given a tenth of his foals to just anybody. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, he recognizes that this is a man of importance. He recognizes his authority, but he also recognizes his ability to go and approach to God. We might suggest this, that Melchizedek had the ability, he had power with men as a king, and he had power with God as a priest. And in that way, I believe he is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, of course, is the coming King of kings, Lord of lords, and, of course, he's also our high priest. But it reminds us that he has authority with mankind. He's able to reach down and deal with humanity, but he also has power with God, and he's able to reach up and touch God and bridge the gap between humanity and divinity. Now, no Levitical priest had the ability or the right to do so. So we notice not only his prerogative. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, "...to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace." Now consider the power and authority that this man had, that Abraham, who is arguably one of the most powerful men in the world at this time in his life. I really don't think that's an overstatement to to present that to you. Abraham, this is a man that was literally able to go out with 300 of his trained servants and defeat a powerful confederation of kings that had been barnstorming through the countryside, had been overthrowing cities left and right. Literally, there were, there were entire cities banding together to try to stand against this confederacy of kings. And it all changed when Abraham showed up. Abraham had been prospered. This is the man that had gone down to Egypt and had come back a very rich man because God had preserved him and, and, and had protected him. So Abraham is a very prominent, well-known individual at this time, and he's a very wealthy and a very powerful man. But when Abraham, when he sees Melchizedek, he bows the knee to him. He recognizes that the power that Melchizedek has is far superior to any authority that he may wield. And I think, you know, it's vested in what it says there. It says he's the king of righteousness, after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. 
What's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perfectly upholding the righteousness of God and perfectly facilitating peace with humanity. Only Christ could do that. Only Christ could, you know, the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 3, that through the righteousness of Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier of them which believe on Him. Uh, so in other words, he's able, God's able through the personal Lord Jesus Christ to maintain His righteousness, but also to have peace with mankind. So we see that Melchizedek was a man of great power. Look at verse 3. We denote the person of Melchizedek. All right, here's where we're going to get to it. All right. Verse 3, the Bible says, "...without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Now, there's basically three understandings of who Melchizedek could have been. Melchizedek could have been a holy mythical figure, and I'll tell you what I believe in a moment. But the three basic opinions is he is either a holy mythical figure that is just told as an allegory that there was no Melchizedek, that is just told to illustrate a truth. I reject that. I reject that because I believe Abraham was a real person. I believe Ketelaomer, one of the kings that, that he fought against, was a real person. I believe Sodom and Gomorrah were real places. Archaeology bears that out. So why in this literal narrative of the life of Abraham would a mythical figure all of a sudden be popped in? I think that, just to be honest, I think that's a cop-out. I think that's people that want an answer without thinking about it. Then there is the idea that Melchizedek was actually Christ himself, that this was what we call a Christophany or a theophany, that this was a pre-Bethlehem incarnation of the Son of God. I reject this as well. The reason I reject this is not because it's impossible, but because of what your Bible says in verse 3. It says, but made like unto the Son of God. It does not say he was the Son of God. It says made like unto the Son of God. And I would suggest to you that if Christ had been Melchizedek, he wouldn't have just been like unto the Son of God. He would have been the Son of God because Christ is the Son of God. So I, I have trouble believing that uh, it was a Christophany or theophany. And by the way, I believe there's a lot more Christophanies in the Old Testament than the average Bible student does. Uh, there's a lot of places that I believe it's Christ being incarnate and being revealed there that a lot of people don't. So I'm not adverse to the notion of Christophanies or theophanies. I just don't believe, given the language in verse 3, that that's possible. So that leaves a third option. If he's not a mythical figure, if he's not Christ, then he must be a real literal figure. Now, here's where all the arguing starts. If that's true, who was he? Uh, there's a lot of varying opinions, and I'm not going to waste time telling you why a thousand of them are not the opinions I have. But I'll tell you who I believe Melchizedek was. I have no authoritative proof about this. But I think you'll find that all the puzzle pieces seem to fit when you think about it. Uh, in the days when Abraham lived, there was a, a handful of people <laughs> that had been left over from a patri or from from a, a pre-flood generation. Really, the only one that we know of. Uh, I'm going to talk about here in a moment. But you've got to remember that before the flood, men lived a whole lot longer. Uh, you know, uh, the the first few generations of men all lived like almost over 900 years, and some well over 900 years. And of course, Methuselah lived almost a thousand years. After the flood, the lifespans of human beings dropped dramatically. Uh, but those that lived before the flood, and I don't know all the scientific, you can ask Ken Ham about that or Kent Hovind, I don't know all the science behind it, but I believe my Bible when it says that these men lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's actually fascinating when you start doing timelines of their genealogies. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you realize this, but there was only, I think, about 60 years that separated Adam and Noah. Um, Methuselah, of course, his name literally means that when he is gone, it shall, it shall come. Uh, Methuselah died, you know, the, right when the flood happened. Uh, so uh, at that time, you had a lot of people walking around on the earth, and you had a lot of lifespans overlapping. Well, we know the story of Noah and the flood. Most of us do in Genesis 6 uh, through 9. We know how that uh, Noah, he, he uh, you know, for 120 years he's building the ark. No one got on the ark except him and his, his seven family members. We know that uh, it was Noah and his wife, and then he had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and that each of them had a wife, and that these eight individuals came through the flood. Well, from those three individuals, you had the sons of Ham basically settled down in the, in the uh, sub-Saharan region. You had the descendants of Japheth basically settled in the European region. And then you had the descendants of Shem who basically settled in the Middle Eastern region. In fact, a lot of times if someone is anti-Jewish, they use a word for it. They call them anti-Semitic 
Well, the reason is because Jewish people are known as Semitic people. Well, if you read your Bible, they're not just Semites, they're Shemites. They're descendants of Shem. Well, the reason is because Shem settled in that area, and everybody that lived in that area was a descendant of Shem. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. In Old Testament times, before the Levitical priesthood was established, the high priest of a family was always the oldest living male. For instance, if you want some scripture about that, don't you remember in the book of Job that Job used to offer sacrifices for his children? Well, that wasn't just because he was a great dad. I mean, he, I believe he was a good dad. Oh, that wasn't just the only reason. The reason that he did this was because it was his duty and responsibility as the patriarch of the family to offer these sacrifices for his children. It was a hierarchical, hierarchical I'll get it here in a second, uh, uh, priesthood that, that was family-oriented. Well, if you do the math, you'll find this to be interesting. Shem was 98 years old, the son of Noah, when the flood took place. Shem then went on to live 500 years after the flood took place. Did you know that uh, Abraham was born only 292 years after the flood? Uh, Whenever Abraham was born, Shem would have been 390 years old. And then Abraham died 467 years after the flood. Now, you remember what I said a moment ago? Abraham died 467 years after. Shem died 500 years after the flood. That means that Shem, the son of Noah, outlived Abraham by 33 years. It's entirely possible that Shem was there at Abraham's funeral. I believe that Shem is the most likely candidate for being Melchizedek. I believe he would have been the oldest living male uh, of that particular lineage, the Shemites. Uh, There's also, and and I try to be careful with this because you've got to be careful with rabbinical writings because there's like mountains of of writings from rabbis that from the past, like, 5,000 years and, uh, well, not that long, but the past, you know, 3,000 years. And they say all kinds of kooky stuff. Uh, but it's actually interesting. A lot of people uh, claim that uh, whenever Shem left the ark, that he had the bones of Adam with him and that he took the bones of Adam and was led to the place that would one day be Mount Moriah, would one day uh, be Jerusalem, and that he settled there. And actually, another rabbinical tradition is that Melchizedek was tasked with protecting the tomb of Adam. So, uh, all those things aside, I believe just simply given the fact that at that time, the oldest living male was the high priest, and Shem was most definitely the oldest living male of the Shemitic people at that time, I believe there's a strong possibility that it was Shem. Consider language in verse 3 too, by the way. This is interesting. Without father, without mother... Without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. You know, if you think about it, if you lived at that time, you know, right now, what year is it? Does anybody know? If we don't know this, we're really in trouble. 2017. Well, that's, that's how many? 2017 years, right? Well, 2017 years from what? From the birth of Christ, approximately, right? Uh, that's why the, you know, Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And before the heretics took over, it was, it was, you know, uh, before Christ, B.C. Now they say before the common era. Not like there's anything common. I mean, it's common to us, but not to all the people that lived before then. Uh, but everything was determined from the birth of Christ in our calendar year, right? Because that was a literally uh, life and eternity changing event. Well, you know, if you lived back in the days of Abraham, Probably, if you were going to reckon time, you would probably reckon it from the year of the flood. And if you had somebody that had lived through the flood, it would almost be that that person had lived before time even began. Uh, You say, well, preacher, that's a stretch. Well, it is a stretch. If you want to know who Melchizedek is, go ahead and die, go to meet the Lord, and go to meet Melchizedek, and you'll find out who he is. But best as we can understand who he is, I think all the pieces fit. But now let me give you a more scriptural answer than that. I hope that's okay if I do that. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. He was the king of Salem. He was the king of righteousness. And his entire existence was for one distinct purpose, that he might be made like unto the Son of God. You see, who Melchizedek is is of far less consequence than who Melchizedek points to. 
And I believe that's what Paul is trying to say here. Now, I believe if we literally interpret these verses, what is Paul trying to point out? Well, he's trying to point out that Melchizedek walks on the Scripture uh, page in, in Genesis 14 and walks off of the same page. We have no clue. We don't know who Melchizedek is. And that's exactly the point, is it's as though Melchizedek had no father or mother. It's as though he had no birth. It's as though he had no death. We know nothing about him. It's like he's this eternal figure in the Old Testament. And the reason for that is to point to the fact that his priesthood foreshadows the priesthood of Christ, which is an eternal priesthood that is not subject to the same obstacles and frailties that the Levitical priesthood was subject to. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the last phrase in verse 3. Abideth a priest continually. That's the point. He abideth a priest continually. So not only do we notice the person of Melchizedek, notice the preeminence of Melchizedek. Verses 4 through 7. Melchizedek was a preeminent priest to the the Levites and the Levitical priesthood. And we know that for two reasons. Notice in verses 4 and 5, number 1, what he expected of Abraham. It says, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So Melchizedek's priesthood is far superior to the Levitical priesthood, number one, because of what he expected from Abraham. He expected tithes. But he didn't just expect tithes of anyone. He expected tithes of Abraham. And by extension, he was receiving tithes from even Levi, even from Aaron. He was receiving tithes from every Jew that would ever live. Because before Abraham, of course, there was no Jewish nation. So it's almost as though the entire Jewish nation has paid homage to the person of Melchizedek. Not only because of what he expected of Abraham, but look at verses 6 and 7. Because of what he extended to Abraham. The Bible says, but he whose descent is not counted from them. In other words, he wasn't a Levite. Uh, The Bible says, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Look at verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Uh, By and large, you know, Paul says this without contradiction. This is a universal rule of life. That those that have more, that those that are a blessing to someone are a blessing because they have something the other person doesn't have, by and large. And it's not just material things. Sometimes it's kindness. Sometimes it's compassion. Uh, but if you're going to bless someone, you're vesting something into their life that they do not have that you have. And so the point that's being drawn here is that Melchizedek obviously was better than Abraham or more powerful or more prominent or had greater standing with God in some sense because he blessed Abraham. Can I give you a modern-day example, right? Uh, If you ever see somebody that's just ugly as homemade sin, I know you have because you're sitting here staring at me, amen? And you might say something like this, well, bless their heart. (laughs) You're saying, bless their heart, they're ugly, (laughs) Bless their heart, I'm glad I don't look like them. Bless their heart, I'm glad I'm not as dumb as they are, you know. You're implying that uh, they are lesser than you. I know that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and silly, but there is some truth there. And I do believe that what's being pointed to in this verse is that obviously Melchizedek had to be superior to Abraham. And if he's superior to Abraham, he had to be superior to Aaron. And if he's superior to Aaron, he had to be superior to the Levites. Uh, In other words, he has a position that is far more superior than them. Look at verse number 8. We notice the permanence of Melchizedek. The Bible says, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Now, what does this mean? Well, God's pointing to the fact that the Levites received tithes in the Old Testament system. But the Levites were human beings that died. They were temporal. They did not live on forever. Uh, one would be a priest for, you know, uh, their entire life. But eventually that life would come to an end. They would die. And uh, then somebody else would stand up in the office of priest and begin to receive tithes. But given that we have no record of Melchizedek's death, even though I do believe he was a literal person, I do believe he did literally die. But according to the record of Scripture, we have no record of it. It's almost as though Melchizedek continues to live. But then to go even a step further, again, remembering Psalms 110, Thou art, called, thou art forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek continues to live on forever. There was no stipulation for how a, a priest under the order of Melchizedek would cease being priest. 
The reason for that is because there's only ever two priests of that order, Melchizedek and the Son of God. And neither of them does Scripture record them dying eternally. Neither one of them. So we find his permanence. There's no, there, there's no uh, mechanism in place. Uh, just, you know, in the Old Testament system, the people that, people that died and met death, they received tithes. But Melchizedek, we have no record of his death. And the Son of God, he, he rose from the dead to die no more. So his receiving of tithes is far superior. Then notice at verses 9 and 10, the primacy of Melchizedek. The Bible says, And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I, I can just imagine a, 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 an Orthodox Jew in that day reading this. And of all the things that must have just got them in an absolute flurry of irritation and flustered disarray, I would bet you it would be these two verses we just read. I mean, to beat it all, with all that Paul has said about how great the priesthood of Christ is, to beat all of that, even Levi paid tithes unto Melchizedek. He's pointing to the fact that there's no dispute about this. He is undoubtedly Lord, Christ is, over all things, and that includes the Old Testament priesthood. Now I want you to look at the next few verses. Consider with me the undeniable legality of Christ as priest. Now remember, God is a God of order. And God is not, though God has the prerogative that He can change anything anytime that He wants, and He doesn't, if God didn't want to, He wouldn't have to play by our rules or anybody's rules. He's God no matter what. God is very orderly, and God is very careful to uphold the truths and realities of the law that He gave. Well, the priesthood of Christ presents a problem. The Old Testament priesthood under Levite was a hereditary priesthood. It, it was something that was passed down through genealogy. It didn't matter if you were a good person. It didn't matter if you knew all the things that were necessary to administer the office of the priest. It didn't matter if you were more righteous than the next ten Levites down the line. If you were not a descendant of Aaron, if you were not a Levite and a descendant of Aaron, you could not be a priest. And, of course, we know that Christ was not a descendant of Levi. You say, how do we know that? Well, don't you remember the Bible says clearly that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, of course, was one of the twelve sons of, of Jacob. Judah was a brother to Levi. So anybody that's a descendant of Judah could not also be a descendant of Levi. This presents a problem. How can Christ be priest if he's not a descendant of Levi? Well, notice first off, there is a change in the priestly ordinance. Look at verse number 11. Uh, well, we'll read verses 11 through 14. It won't take us long. The Bible says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, when it says perfection, it means moral righteous perfection, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Notice first off in verse 11 that the tribal descent had to be changed for Christ to be priest. It says, how could there be a priest? What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So we see that when Christ reigns as high priest, the Old Testament system must be abolished and done away with to make room and allow for him to be high priest. Now remember, before, the, before Aaron ever was a, a, a twinkle in his parents' eyes, before Aaron ever lived, Melchizedek was already a priest. It was already foreordained and established that Christ would be our great high priest that passeth into the heavens. So in other words, the tribal descendancy of the priesthood with the Levites was of necessity a temporary thing. It was not intended to be eternal. It was intended to be done away with. And there has been a change in this tribal descendancy. Uh, it has gone from Levi to Judah. And here we're going to notice that the title deed was changed. And this is how it happened. Uh, in verses 12 through 14, we know that the way God did this was he did away with the Old Testament system of the law. Uh, why did a person have to be a Levite to be a high priest? Well, because the law said so. So God established a new law. 
Now, you might say, well, preacher, it's the law. Well, that's true, but laws can be changed. If you don't believe that, you ought to check in on what our local officials do sometimes. It would shock you. Man, if you're disgusted with what Washington looks like, you ought to check out Nashville sometime. It's probably just as terrifying to see so many of the things that are taking place. Laws change all the time. Here's the problem. You've got to have the authority to change the law. If you were riding down the road in a 30-mile zone and you were doing 50 miles an hour and a cop pulled you over and said, I'm sorry, you were speeding, you were 20 miles over the speed limit, and you were to say, oh, I'm sorry, officer, didn't you know I just changed that speed limit like a week ago? He'd probably look at you like he was crazy. And if he said anything else, he might drag you out of the car and teach you a lesson. He'd say this, whose authority did you have to change that? Well, God has the authority to change the Old Testament law. After all, the law was given by him. So the law was changed. And again, you've got to remember, this is all supporting a larger line of logic that the Old Testament law has been done away with, that there's a new covenant, and he's going to get to that before we're done tonight. But why did the law have to be changed? Because the requirement of the law, verses 12 and 13, for the priesthood being changed, if the priesthood is changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. The law had to be changed. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. So the law required that it be a Levite, and so the law had to be changed. But not only because of that, but the restriction contained within that. Here's the problem. If Christ is ordained to be the priest before the Levites and their priesthood ever existed, then that law had to be changed to allow it. Here's what Paul's trying to get them to understand. The, the preeminent thing is not the Levitical priesthood. The preeminent thing is the Melchizedekian, I guess we'll call it, priesthood. The preeminent thing, they had it in their head. Christ can't be a priest because of the Levites. And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand it. The Levites had to get out of the way to make room for Christ to be priest. Uh, And he had every right and authority to do so because the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek. They acknowledged his priesthood in the loins of Abraham. So there was a restriction of the law in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So there was a change in the priestly ordinance. Notice number two, there was a change in the priestly order. Verses 15 through 19. Uh, and I want you to notice first off the inherent wonder of this new order that's spoken of in verses 15 and 17. He says, and it is yet far more evident. For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. So I want you to notice, by, by the which we draw an eye unto God. So I want you to notice here, he points to two different orders. He points to the old order of the Levites, the new order of Melchizedek. Before he ever gets to why it was necessary to do away with the Old Testament law, he wants to point to just the amazingness of the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. Think with me about three thoughts very quickly. Think about the wonder of its design in verse 15. It says, It is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest. Consider the fact that before the law was ever uttered, God had already planted the seed of the priesthood of Melchizedek, or we might say the priesthood of Christ, in Scripture. Long before Sinai, long before the the redemption out of Egypt, long before the wandering in the wilderness, long before the Ten Commandments, long before Aaron ever lived, long before the uh, Levites ever lived, long before any of this happened, God had designed it so that there would be a way for Christ who is out of the tribe of... And he must be out of the tribe of Judah. You say, why? Because he's not just priest, he's king. <laughs> and uh, and by the way, you know, Salem, where Melchizedek was king, that was also... That's Jerusalem. That's in the province of Judah, right? That's where uh, the tribe of Judah was. Uh, so consider that long before this, uh, God had placed the seed of this priesthood in the Holy Scripture. It's actually interesting, too, because, you know, the priesthood was flourishing in the days of David. I know we kind of think it would be in the days of Solomon because the temple was not built in the days of David, uh, but in the days of Solomon. But the priesthood was larger and functioning more fluidly in the days of David than it did at any other time throughout human history. David, in fact, uh, while he was writing half the book of Psalms, also divided the Levites into 24 different orders so that they could efficiently and effectively execute the ministry of the temple. Uh, The the Levites and the priests had the the full-throated support of David in every way, shape, fashion, and form. But even in the midst of the priesthood in its heyday, 
God speaks prophetically concerning the coming priesthood of Melchizedek. And he does so by no other than the person who is supporting the priesthood so fervently, David himself. So God had not forgotten about this. Even when everything seemed to be wonderful and blissful in the Levitical priesthood, God had not forgotten because he speaks prophetically in David about Melchizedek in Psalms 110. And then, of course, by the time you get down to Christ, uh, the Levitical priesthood was just a shell of what it had once been. And a few short years after Christ ascended to heaven, uh, the Roman Empire would destroy the temple. And from 70 A.D. until the day that we stand here today, the priesthood has been completely obsolete. They can't offer sacrifices. They can't, they can't give it a, bur- at a brazen altar. They can't stand at a table of showbread. The temple has been done away with. The worship of the temple has been done away with. It's been abolished through the days of the Gentiles. And right there, in that little moment before the priesthood was to be done away with for 2,000 years, the priest after the order of Melchizedek steps out of heaven, robed in flesh, walks into earth, is born of a virgin's womb, and dies for our sins and takes up residence at the right hand of God to function as our priest. You just have to stand back and look at it and say, man, God knows what he's doing. (laughs) God knows what he's doing. We can look at the wonder of its design. Verse 16, we can look at the wonder of its dynamism. The Bible says, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. Remember, the Old Testament law was given to an earthly people for an earthly function, for an earthly intent. And he's not made after an earthly commandment. No, but after the power of an endless life. He's going to expand on that in a moment. But consider this, that the high priest that we have is has a dynamic life, an unending life. His life is authenticated. His priesthood is vindicated by no less than his eternal and infinite and invincible existence and by the divine God who's spoken from heaven concerning it. And then that points us to his durability. Verse 17, for he testified, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he points to the inherent wonder of the new order. But then he turns around and points to the inherent weakness of the old order. He says in verse number 18 concerning the Levitical priesthood that there was no power in it. He says, for verily there is a disannulling of the commandment going before, talking about the Old Testament law, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Paul says the Levitical priesthood was weak in that it could not save a man. We've been studying this in Sunday school, and I don't have time to delve into all of it, but the the law was a success in that it did what God intended it to do. God intended in the giving of the Old Testament law not to save a man, but to show a man his lost condition. The book of Romans makes it clear in chapter 1 that the law was given that every mouth might be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. The law was not given to bring a man close to God. It was given to show a man how far he was from God. But you have to remember to the people that Paul is writing, they believe that the law was given to save a man. And in the context of that intent, Paul points to the fact that if that's what the Old Testament law was for, then it was a failure, because it could not save a man. Now, Paul has unhashed and and unpacked this argument time and again throughout the Pauline epistles. But I think just to the mind of the Jew, they can understand that if you keep having to give sacrifices, evidently the sacrifices ain't getting the job done. points to the fact that there's no power in it. He points to the fact that there's no profit in it. The law never had the capacity to make the Jews a righteous people. Now, it it could restrict their immorality to some degree, but it could not make them righteous. And that's evident by the fact that they continue to live as lawbreakers. Every year a sacrifice would have to be given. So evidently, an Old Testament priest could not change a man's life. And that's what he points to in verse 19 as well. He says there's no perfection in it. He said, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw an eye unto God. He says the Old Testament system had to be done away with and make room for the New Testament system of grace under the priesthood of Melchizedek. Why? Because the Old Testament system never made a man right with God. Paul said it this way, both in Romans and in Galatians. He said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's impossible. The law couldn't make a man right with God. The law couldn't make a man righteous in his living. The law couldn't make a man close with God. It had no capacity to. So there had to be a change. If God was to redeem people unto himself, if God was to be their God and them to be his people, then the Old Testament system could not continue in the way it had. So we see there was a change in the priestly ordinance and a change in the priestly order. But also there was a change in the priestly ordination. Look at verse 20. The Bible says, And inasmuch as not without an oath... 
he was made priest. Talking about Melchizedek and talking about the Lord. For those priests who were made without an oath, I'm sorry, those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, the Old Testament priests were not made priests by an oath. Uh, if a person wants to, for instance, uh, you know, take political office, when, when our current president, well, when every president, as far as I know, that we've had, has uh, gone into office, they have stood, they have put their hand on, I hope it's been a Bible, you know, you never know with what you read, but uh, they put their hand on a Bible, they've uh, raised their other hand, they've took an oath, and they have swore to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States of America. And that's how they have been inaugurated, installed into office, is with the taking of an oath. A Levitical priest did not do this. They were born into the priesthood. They never stood and said, I promise and swear to uphold the Old Testament law and the ordinances and uh, rites and ceremonies of Levitical. But they didn't do this. But Jesus was made a priest after an oath. But the oath was not an oath that he gave, although certainly in a sense he did in as much as he's God. But the oath that, that installed Christ as a priest was not given from the Son, that was given from the Father, and it was given through Scripture. Notice it was a singular oath. The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we talk about repentance and we're talking about the Lord, we have to understand that, um, uh, that there, there's, uh, and, and I'm trying, I think anthropomorphism is the name for it, uh, in, in Old Testament writing, anthropomorphism is the attributing to God physical attributes so that we may better understand Him. For instance, the Bible said, talks about how that we, we are sheltered under His wings, right? You've read that before, Tom. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Psalms about being, being placed under the wings of God. But I don't believe God has wings. I believe God's just trying to convey to us a truth about the way that He relates with His people. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of attributes, physical attributes given to God, but I don't believe they... they uh, are, are actually literally explicitly talking about the physical characteristics of God the Father. You say, why? Because I don't believe he has physical characteristics because God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is what we call anthropomorphism. It's attributing some sort of physical attribute to God so that we can better understand something about his character. Well, anthropomorphism does not just relate to physical activity but and, and attributes. It also relates to emotional or character traits. For instance, the Bible talks about how God is a jealous God. Well, He is a jealous God, but His jealousy is not like our jealousy. You understand? Uh, the reason the Bible says He's a jealous God is because we understand what jealousy means. And so that relates to us something about how God feels about His people. When the Bible says the Lord repents of something, it doesn't mean the Lord repents in the way that we repent. It means that the actions of the Lord are such that it appears that it's repentance. I mean, a God that knows everything and a God that doesn't change, because, you know, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, how could he ever repent? Because repenting is a 180-degree turn. It's a change of the, of the heart and the mind that produces a change in the actions, right? So God does not have the ability to, to repent the way that we think of repenting. But what it means when it says that God repented of something is it means God was, was behaving in one way and he changed that behavior in response to something. Usually it's prayer in the Bible or, or someone's faith. He changed. Uh, another good example of that, that that might express this, and I know we got to hurry, but, but you be patient with me. If you'll stick in with me tonight, even if we go over a little bit, we'll finish tonight instead of going on for another week. You remember in the New Testament when the Bible talks about there was a, a blind man sitting by the wayside and Christ was walking by and he cried out, Have mercy upon me, thou son of David. And the Bible says Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. And the Bible says it was as though Jesus was going to pass by, but he stopped. Well, what was he going to do? Was he going to pass by or was he going to stop? Well, he was always going to stop. Uh, he knows everything, Right? But the Bible tells us it was as though he was passing by and then he stopped for this reason to get us to understand that when we cry out to God, it gets God's attention. So this is almost like, like a sort of a reverse engineered form of, of anthropomorphism. So now stop and consider what's said here. God has sworn he will not repent. So in other words, God's not saying, I promise that I won't change my mind because God never changes his mind. But he's saying this, not only am I going to swear that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to swear that there will never be anything 
There is no condition to this whatsoever. There's nothing that anybody in the world could do that will ever change the course of this action. It is settled forever. So when God says uh, in uh, verse number, let's see, where are we at? In uh, verse number 21, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's to help us understand that when Christ was ordained as a priest, he was ordained eternally. The Lord made one oath concerning Christ's priesthood, and he's not going to make another one. He's not going to up and decide tomorrow, well, I don't want him to be a priest anymore. He's sworn and will not repent. It is a singular oath. But notice it is a superior operation, verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. In other words, the connection of us to God is directly vested in the connection of Jesus to the Father. He is our guarantee of the New Testament. I've said this before, and I can't dwell on it because we just don't have time to, but I've said this before, that for me to lose my salvation, Christ would have to fall off of his throne. For me to die and go to hell, Jesus would have to die and go to hell because I am placed in him. He is the surety of a better testament. And the priesthood that I appeal unto when, when I confess my sins and He's faithful and just to forgive my sins, when I pray unto Him, when I approach my high priest, I'm approaching a high priest. I can have confidence. He's on the throne today. He'll be on the throne tomorrow. He's, uh, he's functioning as a priest today. He'll be functioning as a priest tomorrow. He is the surety of a better testament. And literally, for my salvation to collapse, Jesus would have to fall off of His throne. So we see in this passage there was a change in the priestly ordinance. Uh, Notice not only the uh, uh, undoubted lordship of Christ, notice not only the undeniable legality of Christ as priest, but notice the undying life of Christ as priest. Now look at verse number 23, and we're going to get most of the way through chapter 8 just in this section, then we'll finish chapter 8 here in a moment. But look at verses number 23 to 28. This finishes up chapter 7. The Bible points to why Christ is able to, to minister to us, why he is able to minister us. And it gives us basically three reasons. Look at verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Uh, Christ is a capable priest for you and I, because he is a continuing priest. I never have to worry that he's going to die, and I'm going to have to find a new high priest. Now, you've got to think about what that must have been like for an Old Testament Jew. Uh, the high priest, for instance, Eli was a high priest. He was 90 years old when he died. He had been the high priest for decades and decades. And you could imagine the dismay that a person may have felt when their high priest died. They had known him. He had borne their sorrows and their burdens. And they had come to him and poured out their heart unto him. And then when he died, they had to go and find a uh, uh, well, they didn't go find a new high priest, but they had to go to a new high priest and learn a new high priest and them to learn them. And, of course, with any human being going into a job, there's, a, there's growing pains and there's a, there's a growth curve to all of those things. But Christ, when we approach unto Him, He continueth forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's able to minister for us because He is a continuing priest. Look at verse 25. The Bible says, Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Because he never dies, we never have to worry that the process of our coming unto God will be left unfinished. He is capable in his priesthood. In other words, we never have to worry that we're going to pray to God, and before the prayer ever gets to God, Jesus is going to fall down dead. We never have to worry that as God is sanctifying us, how many people say often, God's working on me, right? And I say that all the time. And certainly I am a work in progress. God's working on me. We don't have to worry that Jesus is going to fall down and die before God's done working on us. He, Because he is a continuing priest, he is a capable priest. And then notice he is a consecrated priest. He is consecrated in his life. Look at verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Though Jesus mingled among sinners, he was never marred by sinners. Though uh, he testified among sinners, he was never tainted by sinners. Though he served in, among sinners and saved sinners, he was never stained by sinners. 
Though he was amongst sinners, and though he ate with publicans and sinners, still in his life he was holy before God, he was harmless before others, and he was undefiled in his own mind and in himself. He was separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. And can I just pause and say this? Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, you know, it's amazing the attacks there are today on the, the, uh, the, the perfect sinless nature of Jesus Christ. They're everywhere. They come out of Hollywood. They come out of trash books. They come out of all bad theology. You'd be amazed. They come out of a lot of the charismatic movement. Uh, it, it would shock you to realize how many people attack the sinless nature of Christ. If anybody ever tries to attack you, you just take them right back to Hebrews chapter number 7 and verse 26. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. So not only was he consecrated in his life, but evidently he was consecrated in his death. Verse 27, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Again, part of the reason that I have a problem with the notion of mass and this continual living sacrifice uh, that people partake in of, of what they believe about transubstantiation and communion and stuff and the idea that they have to sacrifice Christ continually. The Bible says he gave one sacrifice and it was sufficient. So there's no question. Uh, we don't have to. He doesn't have to be sacrificed afresh and anew. One sacrifice was sufficient. And that's proof to us that he was sinless. See, the, high, the Old Testament priest, he would offer two sacrifices, one for the people, one for himself. Jesus just gave one sacrifice, and it was for the people. It was for you and I. He didn't have to give a sacrifice for himself because he himself was sinless. But also in his resurrection, the Bible says, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law, meaning before the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Evidently, he was approved in the presence of God, because God raised him from the dead. So we see not only uh, in this passage that he's a, uh, an undying, or his undying life of Christ as our high priest, we see why he is able to minister to us in the verses we've read. But look at the first five verses of chapter 8, we see where he is able to minister for us. Now remember, why he's a good high priest, why he's able to minister, and where he's able to minister. Well, notice that it's a place of majesty in verse number 1. The Bible says, now the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. So Paul's getting ready to close up this argument about the priesthood of Christ. This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, Christ is able to be a high priest for us because he is at the right hand of God. Once a year, the Shekinah glory of God would sit down upon the Old Testament tabernacle and then temple. And the presence of God would visit the mercy seat. And on that day and that day alone, the high priest would be allowed to go in and offer an atoning sin or an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people for the year that was past. But Jesus, he doesn't just enter into the presence on one day a year. He doesn't just enter into the presence of God occasionally. He is constantly at the right hand of God the Father. And as such, he's a fit high priest. We notice not only it's a place of majesty, but it's a place of ministry. In fact, it's the true place of ministry. Look what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Man, you, you could preach a whole message just on that last phrase, couldn't you? This man has somewhat to offer. But what it's saying here, and, and I t let's read verses 4 and 5 again. I think we might be better off to go in reverse order here. The Bible says, For if he were on earth... He should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. It's necessary that Christ minister in a different tabernacle than the Levitical priesthood did. Why? Because Christ was not a Levitical priest. Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So if they ministered on earth, he had to minister somewhere else. And that's exactly what he did. But let's not get the, the cart before the ox. The Old Testament tabernacle, and, and Paul's going to enlarge on this big time, and we'll talk about it this fall when we come back. He's going to enlarge on the types and shadows of the Old Testament tabernacle. But all of those types and, and shadows were just that. They were types and shadows. 
That was the elementary. That was the kindergarten of God's knowledge. Those were given to help them understand something about who and what God is. But Christ, He doesn't like a Levite minister in an earthly tabernacle. He ministers in the true tabernacle. The tabernacle of God, the presence of God, upon which the Old Testament tabernacle was modeled. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. Don't you realize that you're going to a priest and having them offer sacrifices in an earthly tabernacle, and it's modeled after a heavenly tabernacle. You could be praying to the Son of God who's in the real tabernacle, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So he's pointed to, and by the way, again, he's going to revisit it, but that right there should settle it. If we want to wonder whether Christ is a better high priest than any human being could ever be, what other human being ever entered into the heaven of God's heavens and ministered as a high priest on our behalf? At the end of the day, that's, that's the, the final nail in the coffin. That, that's the, the keystone of the, uh, of the whole arch, is that Christ got the job done. No Old Testament priest ever did. But Jesus, we have... I mean, remember, what, what, what's the sum of all this? In verse 1, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's what it all boils down to. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus entered into God's presence. Jesus ministers for us on God's or on our behalf in the presence of God. He got the job done when no one else could. I want to share with you just a few verses, and, and we'll close. We might go just five, ten minutes over. Uh, normally, you'd be leaving right now, amen, but uh, you said you'd be patient with me. I heard a few of you all mutter that when I asked, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you see this little bit left in our notes here, right? That's, I didn't want to leave that till the fall. I didn't want to come into half of chapter 8. So this is why it's a little long tonight. Uh, but we've been for the past, from chapter 3 up to where we just stopped. We were in one singular block of thought, which was this, that Christ is a better high priest for us. But now Paul moves on and gives a short testimony of the fact that not only do we have a better high priest, but we have a better security than they had in the Old Testament. In fact, the New Covenant, and that's what it is. There's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament. There's an Old Covenant, there's a New Covenant. The Old Covenant was made with, uh, with Israel there at Mount Sinai. It was ratified with Israel uh, whenever the, the blood was sprinkled upon them and the Levitical priesthood was instituted. But our priesthood is the priesthood of Melchizedek, and it's based not upon the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, but upon the New Covenant. Notice a few things. In fact, we have basically four things we want to say, and then we'll close. Look at verse 6. We have an improved covenant to the Old Testament system. The Bible says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, talking about Christ, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, when we talk about this covenant, we're not talking about some, something out in the ether. We're not talking about something that is, that is uh, theoretical, something that is relative, so on and so forth. We're talking about a literal promise and covenant that God made, actually not even with the church, He made with the Jewish people. And it's contained in the book of Jeremiah. I don't have my reference right in front of me. I'll track it down. You can come and ask it uh, of me whenever you, we get done with the class. But in the book of Jeremiah, God made this promise that he would, at the end of days, establish a better covenant, a new covenant with the Jewish nation, and he would write their, his law upon their hearts and upon their minds. Before he had written it upon stone, but now he's saying, I'll write it upon your hearts and upon your minds. Do you know that actually uh, this covenant, like I said, was not with the New Testament church? Now, we enjoy a part of this covenant because this covenant was allowed by Calvary. We'd been made partakers of Calvary if we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But this covenant was far broader than just salvation. For the Jewish people, it also involved bringing them into the full realization of, of Canaan, into the land, and them having all of the land that God had promised them. It had to do with God relieving them from the oppression of, of their uh, adversaries. It had to do with uh, God uh, turning the entire Jewish nation in a day uh, unto Him and them believing on Him. It had to do with God being a God unto them and them being a people unto, unto Him. When we talk about the new covenant, 
we're not just talking about the New Testament, the 39 books of the New, or 27 books of the New Testament. When we talk about the, the New Covenant, we're talking about this promise God made to the Jewish people. And it is an inherently better, improved covenant than the Old Covenant. You know why? Because it is a covenant that's established upon promise. I don't have time to dive into all of it. But do you know that whenever the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, God first conditioned the Old Covenant upon promise and upon grace. God said, I will do these things for you. I will lead you into the land. I will be a God to you. I will watch over you. But you know what the children of Israel said? Uh, God sent His law down from Sinai, and they said, all these things will we do. They forfeited the opportunity to enjoy their relationship with God based upon grace. And when I say their relationship, I mean an earthly relationship. And instead chose for it to be based upon the Old Testament system of law. And Christ in, in the new covenant, and Paul is pointing to this, the new covenant is not based upon our ability to keep the law. It's based upon the promise of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and imparted unto him or unto us by his righteousness. It's a far better way. It's a far better covenant. It's an improved covenant. Look at verses 7 and 8. It's an imperative covenant. In other words, it was necessary. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Evidently, the Old Covenant was not sufficient because God promised during the Old Covenant that He would lead them into a new covenant. So it was an imperative covenant. Uh, You know what He's pointing to? He's pointing these Jewish individuals to the fact that, hey, this day of grace should not surprise you. God promised in the Old Testament this would happen. This is not some strange and new doctrine that we have concocted out of thin air. This is something based upon the truth and concrete reality of the Word of God. It was necessary, and God knew it was necessary. The Old Testament couldn't make you right with God. The law couldn't make you just with God. The law could not make you righteous with Him. And because of that, there had to be a new covenant. It was imperative. Notice not only is it an imperative covenant, but it's an important covenant. Look what it says. It's mindful in verse number 9. The Bible says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. In other words, this is an important covenant because God realizes that it's going to change. It's going to fix what was broken in the old one. The old covenant was based upon them obeying. But guess what? Human beings don't obey. It was based upon them living right. But guess what? Human beings don't live right. So God found a way to provide a new relationship between Him and the Jewish nation, not based upon their obedience in the sense of their their righteousness, their own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of Christ. It was mindful. Look at verse 10. It's meaningful. The Bible says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. In other words, God says, you know how I'm going to fix it? I'm going to fix it in a lasting way. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to literally breathe life into you, breathe new life into you, and thereby it's going to change who and what you are. It was a meaningful covenant. Not only that, verse 11, it's a memorable covenant. The Bible says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This has not been fulfilled yet for the nation of Israel. Uh, A lot of people get off track with their eschatology, with their prophecy, because the Bible talks about how uh, a nation would be born in a day. And this was a new thing. You know, I believe it's the book of Isaiah talks about that, that a nation would be born in a day, or maybe Zechariah. But people say, well, that happened in 1948. Well, here's the problem. They might have been born politically, the Jewish nation, in 1948, but they've not been born spiritually as a people. And that's what's being spoken of. You say, when's that going to happen, preacher? At the end of the tribulation period, when Christ returns in power and in glory, every eye will look on him whom they've pierced and they'll repent and they'll turn in that day as a nation and an entire nation will be born in a day. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's significant that the Jewish nation became a nation again in 1948. A A lot of prophecy concerning the return of Christ cannot happen unless there is a Jewish nation. So I believe it's significant. I believe it's 
important. I believe it's a great thing. Uh, listen, uh, if, if Israel wanted Iceland tomorrow, I'd be for it, okay? I'm, I'm for the Jewish nation. I'm for them having as much as they can have. But I believe it's bad eschatology to try to make what happened in 1948 the same thing that's being referenced when the Bible says a nation be born in a day. I don't believe it's accurate because that's talking about spiritual birth, not talking about political birth. So it's a meaningful, but it's a memorable covenant. Uh, they've not yet been born again, all of them, but there will come a day when they won't have, there won't be no teaching the law one to another, like the Levites taught the law to the Old Testament Jews, but they'll all know the Lord themselves. Then notice verse, or verse 12, it is a merciful covenant. The Bible says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins. Man, I love this. And their iniquities will I remember no more. This is where us in this New Testament day of grace have entered into this covenant. Now, we've not entered into some of the earthly promises because they're not made to us. But we've entered into the spiritual consequences of it, which is that we are a child of God. You know how? Because we've gone into that covenant the same way that a Jewish person today goes into that covenant. We've gone to it or we've gone into it through Calvary. You know, it's like the songwriter says, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. If we know the Lord, it's because we've been to Calvary. And that's the entrance. That's the doorway into the fold of God and into this covenant that God has promised. It's a merciful covenant. Notice not only is it an important covenant, and I'm done with this, but it's an implemented covenant. Verse number 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Don't let that scare you if you're feeling rough today. Amen. <laughs> that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And certainly, I don't know that they understood it when this was written, but certainly there's a tone of prophecy there. For that Old Testament system was getting ready to vanish away, and it has vanished away. Now, I understand during the tribulation period that much of the Old Testament law will be practiced again in Israel. I'm aware of all that. I know there will be a temple. I know there will be sacrifices. But God's time for the Old Testament system was done. And God made that abundantly clear in 70 A.D. when one of Titus's generals tossed a torch into the temple and lit it aflame, and they destroyed the Old Testament temple. And from that day to now, the sacrifices have ceased. Well, you know why? Well, they ceased because it's the times of the Gentiles. They ceased because the children of Israel rejected the Messiah. But they ceased because it decayed and vanished away. God was done with that system. Why? Because God has a new system. God, God was done with that covenant. Why? Because God has a new covenant. One day that covenant is going to be realized for every single Jew. But right now it can be realized, at least the, the salvitic part of it, the salvation element for those that come to Him. And that's what Paul's pointing to. He's saying, listen, in Christ, we have something far better than they had in the Old Testament system. 